I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live, if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are all sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the present, or that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Thank God for the reading of his word. As we look to this text this morning, uh, it is a, in some, in some sense, uh, the whole context is a bridge uh, between what is said in Romans chapter 7 and what will be said in terms of uh, the remnant in Romans chapters 9 to 11. Uh, I'm convinced that Paul is not only concerned with the Christian's walk, he's concerned with how the Lord has traditionally uh, dealt with Israel and how the Lord will deal with Israel. And it will be uh, along the same lines when you think about our salvation and our hope in the Messiah. It's along the same lines as he's always done so, and that is by faith. And he's always required righteousness. We read that this morning as a great companion to what we're studying Being in Leviticus, Leviticus deals with that. It deals with holiness. It deals with righteousness. It deals with what God requires of his people. And so it's fitting that this text is barreling toward that reality for us. And so, but uh, as we look at the Christian's allegiance, which is what this sermon is entitled, as we look at the Christian's allegiance, uh, we are confronted with a few different questions. We are confronted with a few questions. And the first question is, to whom do we owe our allegiance? That is what Paul essentially is dealing with in this particular context. To whom do we owe our allegiance? And stated another way, to whom do we have obligation? Who do we have our obligation to? And who is our master? Who's our master? And then who liberates us? And then if we are not free, then to whom are we slaves and what are the terms of our slavery? And I believe that... Each of those questions are ones that Paul himself deals with. I'll repeat them for you. To whom do we owe our allegiance? To whom do we have obligation? Who is our master? And who liberates us? And if we are free, then to whom are we slaves? And what what are the terms of our slavery? Whether we're free or not free. And Paul is dealing with all of this uh, in the words that he writes Uh, to the Romans. But essentially, if it can be summed up, what is Paul speaking to? What is he trying to address? How is he trying to get Christians uh, to focus in in light of uh, the present world before them and in light of uh, eternity uh, with which they stand? And he's dealing with aspects related to the Christian sanctification. He's dealing with that which corresponds to the Christian sanctification. And namely, he's interested in not only sanctification as some kind of theological or abstract principle, but he's dealing with it as it relates to how the Christian is cleansed in the ongoing sense and how the Christian understands whether he or she has been liberated from sin in light of God's sanctifying work in Christ. So it's not only how they have been cleansed, but then how does my walk affirm whether that has taken place and that uh, that I trust in Christ solely for that reality. But in verse 12, we begin to see a transition. We see a transition. And the transition is that he's dealing with, namely Christians, about these features. So he certainly has been doing so as we look to the passages that precede us. But from time to time, Uh, We understand that even as he has transitioned into what is said in Romans 8, 
that now he's speaking directly to Christians about the Christian walk. That's important because when we get to Romans chapter 9, he'll be speaking to Christians about the plight of remnant Jews. And then he'll also be speaking to Christians about their attitude toward God's divine scheme for the Jews. But here he's dealing with Christians about Christians, not that the terms are different for those who would be comprised of believing Jews, but he's specifically interested in how Christians set their focus, their walk, their hope in Christ alone. He's talking to brethren. He's talking to brethren who are saying and confessing that they are in Christ. If we look at verse 12, it says, so then brethren, so then brethren, as a result of all that was said before, as a result of being raised in Christ Jesus, as a result of being given the new birth and having new life in him and being expected to walk in that manner, he says, so then, brethren. And then he deals with this matter of obligation. We are under obligation. And it is because among the population of Jews, they place themselves in obligation to the rabbinical temple. And I'm talking about those Jews who were deceived, those Jews who were a part of apostate Judaism. They were under obligation to the flesh in that regard. Religious obligation to that which had nothing to do with the scripture. It had nothing to do with the new covenant, but they had placed themselves in obligation uh, to the tenets of apostate Judaism. And so for the those who were Gentiles, they had placed themselves in in obligation to Rome, uh, to Romans' plethora of religions, to Romans' paganism. But Paul says here, if you are in Christ, you're freed from all that. You're not free from obligation, but your obligation shifts. You are now obligated to something different than what you were obligated to before. And so he deals with that. He says we are under obligation, but he makes it clear. You're not under obligation to the flesh. You're not under obligation to the flesh. And he doesn't just leave it there. He doesn't just say the flesh and then we're left to try to figure out what that means. Well, we know that he's talking about that sin principle, but he's also talking about that sin principle that's constrained to the nature. Because he says to live according to the flesh. So you're not obligated to the flesh any longer. When Christ frees the Christian and liberates him, Based on the blood of his cross, based on his cross work, based on the righteousness that he credits to the once unbelieving sinner who now is a believer by faith in Jesus Christ, by confession of his sins. We now know that not only has the obligation shift, but your lifestyle shifts, your life shifts, those day to day acts that testify to whom do you belong. And I would suppose that the simplicity of what's said in Romans chapter 8, verse 12, is something that is really striking. Because when people begin to say what they identify with, they name, I would say, millions and millions of things. They would name family. They would name institutions that they belong to. They would name all kinds of things. But Paul is saying you either have an obligation to the spirit or you have an obligation to the flesh. And I believe that that simplicity is so narrowed down because that is the means by which God sees us. That's how he judges. You strip away everything this hour that people want to identify with, the political party, uh, academic institutions, or institutions that are religious in nature, or people want to identify with family members, or some pastime hobby. Whatever it is, Paul strips it down to you are either in obligation to the flesh and identifying with such and its consequences or to the spirit and identifying with him and thus reaping the rewards of that. That's what it comes down to. And I believe that this is also propelling us forward when we begin to discuss, well, then who is the true Jew? Who is the true Jew? Because those terms are the very same. You see this hour when, when that question is asked, even in the realm of Christianity, who's a true Christian? People begin to say all these things about how they might define what it means to be a true Christian. Whereas Paul says, 
It deals with sanctification. It looks like this. Your life looks like this. Your obligation looks like this. The manner in which you live identifies you with either one, either or. And so it is that sense. To live uh, according to the flesh is no longer your obligation. It was once. Before you were in Christ, essentially the implication is before you were in Christ, you were once obligated to the flesh. Why? Because you acted in accordance to your nature. You could only act in that manner that was consistent with your nature. So that was your obligation. Uh, the flesh is certainly encompassing so many things. And it's like we had said before when we began to look at these things, especially in Romans chapter 7, verse 14. Uh, often when flesh shows up, you do have to delineate what it means and how it appears and what relationship does it have uh, to what's around it. Typically, when you see the word flesh, sometimes it can mean flesh and bones. Uh, sometimes it can mean uh, it can mean those things that correspond to the nature. Sometimes it can mean the sin principle that is at war with the new nature, but it is being subdued and fought successfully against day by day. But here you see that if you look at Romans chapter 8, verse 8, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. He's dealing with it from the reality of nature. The unbelieving nature, not simply as a sin principle for the believer, which in sometimes that's what it means. But when you look at this, he's making a severance from the from the flesh. He's separating us from the flesh in the way that he's saying it is a standard. It is a standard, but it's also the nature that is informing the standard to live according to the flesh. And there's also consequences. There's consequences for living according to the flesh. But we no longer have a debt to the flesh. And that's what Paul is dealing with. Paul is concerned essentially with to whom do we owe our debt. We are saying we're in Christ Jesus. To whom do we owe our debts? For if Christ has paid back our eternal debt, since he alone possesses the eternal resources to pay God back, then we are no longer in debt to the things that Christ has satisfied. It is why the passage began as it did. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Furthermore, after that, Paul is simply explaining why that's the case, what that looks like. If we're to say that we have that status, it's not only claiming the status, but there's evidence that we possess it. That's what Paul is concerned with. So we are no longer in debt to our flesh. And that's not simply an abstract principle. I say that because so many teach these things and they teach them as some kind of theological seminar or some theological principle. And it has no bearing upon the life. But what Paul is concerned with is the life informed by the standard, the life informed by the standard. So if I'm living according to the spirit then you will be able to see and I will be able to see that that is the case. If I'm living according to the flesh, then you will be able to see and I will be able to see that that is the case. No matter how much we try to misappropriate, misinterpret and misidentify, we know when someone or something is fleshly. We know it. Because we know when something or someone is living in the spirit. And so we see that here. It's the standard. In this case, since we are in Christ, since we have him indwelling us, that's where Paul goes. He goes to the fact that he indwells us. He lives in us. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 10. If Christ is in you, if Christ is in you, it's not only so much belonging to Christ. It's Christ indwelling you. It's the Holy Spirit indwelling you. Paul says it in Galatia as well, in Galatians. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. We talked about that last time, that Christ in us, 
The idea that he is indwelling us. Since we have the same power that raised Jesus from the dead inhabiting us. And if that is the case, then we have the source of our sanctification living in us. And then we owe nothing to the flesh. Again, not only related to the principle of sin, but the flesh being used here also as the nature, the sin nature. That nature we had before the eyes of our heart were open to the salvation and grace that we have in Christ Jesus. And so if all of this is the case, if Christ is living in us, the one who not only empowers our sanctification, but he lives in us to see to it that our sanctification is a reality. He lives in us for that purpose. Well, then we do not live according to the flesh in response. And I believe that everything that people say to try to argue against the fact that we can understand who is Christian and who is not is along these lines. We talked about it very early on in Romans. It's the feature by which we understand that if Christ is in us, if the power of his cross and the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us and not just lives in us for some abstract principle. Again, it's not just that he lives in us. And so we respond in worship. No, he lives in us to make our sanctification sure. So that power propels us to do something. That power keeps us from something, namely sin in the flesh. And that power moves us forward in this walk so that we can war successfully against sin and so that we can live holiness, a holy life. The sanctified life is the evidence of the Christian life. It is also the assurance of the Christian life. Many people don't understand that that's the case. A sanctified life is not only the evidence, it's the assurance. It's how people know that they're Christians because they're living lives that are sanctified. They're living the sanctified life, not without its pitfalls, not without its frustrations, not without it at, at times there's sin that must be confessed. But the Christian has a pattern, as a standard. They're living lives that are certainly testifying and bearing evidence that they belong to him. Why? Because the power of Christ is in them. Because Christ is in them. That's the answer. And so they owe nothing to the flesh. They owe nothing to the flesh. And if a person is confessing Christ with their mouth and paying everything, deference, homage, everything that they have, their lives are lived in the flesh, then their words are empty. Then the life itself is testifying, I belong to the flesh. Yes, I'm saying Christ. In fact, I enjoy the religious benefits that come along with being affiliated with this, with, uh, this thing called Christianity. But when it comes down to it, my life is not testifying that I've been bought and paid for. My life is not testifying that I've been born again. Because my life is not testifying that I have the power of his resurrection working in me. Here's the danger. Being in what is known as charismaticism and other things like that. You hear this power is supposed to be used to unlock temporal things for you. You hear that. Or you hear that this power is supposed to grant to you what you believe you can have in this life alone. But that's not the case. The power is for your sanctification. The power is for your sanctification. So when we look at this. Uh, we look at uh, we look at verse 13 for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. You must die. The evidence is not only in the life that is lived in the flesh. The evidence is in the conclusion that the life lived in the flesh, the judgment that follows. That's the judgment. Well, you and I can't see that. Yes, we can. You can see a life that's marked by the flesh and you can see how the life concludes. You can see that. You can see that for yourself. And that's what Paul says. 
you must die. Because if there were no evidence of that, then there would be no evidence to what he says next in verse 13. In the second part of it, when he makes a contrast. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You will live. So how is it that there's no evidence when we talk about the negative aspect of someone living a life in the flesh, but we're compelling all these people to live lives in the spirit? And we're telling them that there's a benefit to that. But we can never identify that there is actually those who live according to the flesh. Their lives look fleshly and they die. And their lives conclude. And now they have to stand before him in judgment. But when you look at the Christian, the Christian lives a life putting to death the deeds of the body. The Christian is at war against the flesh as a sin principle within themselves because they now live life in the spirit. All of this is what is said, and Paul reaffirms it as it said in Romans chapter 7, verses 14 to 25. When he deals with the fact that you have working in you the remnants of a former nature, the principle being present, and you have now within you the new nature, the new man being born again, in which you are now granted the power to go to war. And then at the end of the Christian's life, that is the realization that you have won the war. That is the realization that you have won the war. So much of the Christian life, a lot of people say it can't be done individually. Well, here, yes, it can. Because by the spirit, you are to put to death the deeds of your own body. You have a lot of people helping a lot of people in the flesh because they're not doing the individual work. Everybody's talking about community, but nobody's dealing with themselves in this area of sanctification individually. Oh, the Christian life can't be lived individually. Well, they don't want you to live it individually because then you have to actually do the work of dealing with your conscience and dealing with the effects of sin in the right way. Being washed and renewed in the word of God. Through prayer, through repentance, through confession. But what happens is people come to the door of Christian theater and we push them into groups and we tell them, go deal with each other. And nobody's doing the labor and the warring of dealing with their own flesh, going to war against their flesh. So when we open our mouths and when we actually do things together, it doesn't look like going to war against sin. It looks like two fleshly people who can speak religiously, talking about the things that the Bible says, but there's no power behind how do we actually deal with sin? How do we deal with sin? And it doesn't say I got to deal with your sin and you got to deal with my sin. It says I got to deal with my sin and you got to deal with your sin. And then now we can have fellowship. Now we can walk together in the power of Christ. Now we are walking together in the power of Christ together. But the emphasis today is on the together. As if you have the power because the powers in your ministry experience, the powers in your results, the powers in your social media platform to deal with my sin. When the power is in what Christ has accomplished. And if he's accomplished that power, I have it in me. I have it in me. I don't have to plug myself into all these scenarios for me to deal with my sin. It's in me. And so now I deal with it. And when I come before the word of God, it is agreement. I'm being built up. That's what amen is. Amen is let it be so. I agree. You're ratifying the things that are already decreed. I can tell you that companionship Beautiful as it is, relationship, beautiful as it is, events, sometimes fun as they are or not fun, depending on what they are. They have no power to cancel sin. They have no power against the flesh in and of themselves. However, astute, credential, impressive men are in their eloquence and all the things that back them up. Institutional dominance, 
None of those things has power to deal with sin. You know who has power to deal with sin? Christ. And if you're in Christ and he is in you, you then now have the power to deal with sin. I would say the shocking thing is what I just said and what Paul has said is very scandalous in the world of Christianity today. Because we've gone the way of community. Modern evangelicalism is speaking community. We want it big. We want it bright. We want it expansive. We want the show. And nobody's sin is being dealt with individually. Sure, we even want to quote the people who talk about these things. But we don't want to do the legwork of actually dealing with our own sin. Because when you deal with your own sin, you are demonstrating the power of Christ. That is the testimony. That's the testimony. Because nothing in the world can offer that. There's nothing that can offer to deal with your sin except the power of Christ and him alone. That's it. And so you have people who are able to say Christian things, who are able to do things that look Christian, and who are able to live lives that seem moral, and yet there is no war against sin. It's just a fleshly life that has been modified in the flesh. And how can we blame it? Whenever you can't be alone before God, and you're not encouraged to be alone before God, how can you deal with your sins before God alone? And then go out before the people and let's walk together in these things. Let me help you the way that the power of Christ has helped me. Not the way that some man has helped me. Not the way that some books have helped me. Let me help you in the way that the word of God has dealt with me. Let me deal with you according to the word of God. Because I am dealing with myself according to the word of God. We don't live in that place anymore. I know this church does, and there are some out there that do. But as a whole, the modern evangelical Christian testimony is one of community, not individually putting to war, uh, putting, uh, putting to death through war, uh, the deeds of the flesh. But I tell you all this because there's an outcome. The urgency that I bring to you this morning is because of the outcome. I warn us even about ourselves because of the outcome. I warn me about myself. I ought to be always doing this because of the outcome. Well, if I'm not doing this, it's like it's not simply an oopsie. I get to do it again. People will forgive me. Everyone will accept me. I made a mistake. It happens. No, the standard is if I live according to the flesh, no matter how I'm living that way, the outcome is death. And the outcome is judgment. There's a consequence. There's a debt that I have to pay on my own if I live according to my flesh. It is physical and eternal death. If I'm a Christian, I'm not afraid of the first one. Sure, do I have my concerns? Do I want to be ready to meet death when it, when it comes for me? Do I want to make sure that I have done all I can in my life, not only in the realm of spiritual matters, but natural matters to take care of the ones I love? Most certainly. But I have no fear of it. Because of what Christ accomplished. But if I live in the flesh, I ought to have great fear of it. Because of what it leads to. It leads to eternal death. And that's what Paul is dealing with. He's not only dealing with the flesh as something that needs to be managed. As something that we need to maybe talk about. Or as something we put our chairs in a circle and we can just talk about flesh. He's saying you got to go to war with this. Because the consequence is so great. The arena with which we're in the battle is so important. It's either life or death. It is a matter of life or death. This is where it leads. This is certain. And so how do we know if we're in the spirit? And then what is the outcome? How do we know these things? To whom do we owe this debt? He says in verse 14, for all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are sons of God. In this, we find out that we have our adoption, adoption through election, adoption through election. 
that we are chosen by God to be his sons. This is amazing. The only debt we owe now is really no debt at all if you think about the debt that we used to owe. It is evident that the sin debt no longer remains. We live a life in the spirit. We continually put the deeds, uh, put, put to death the deeds of the flesh. And that's because the spirit is opposed to the flesh. But also life in the spirit is opposed to life in the flesh. So the testimony from Paul to the Romans and to us, if we live in the spirit, is that we are sons of God. We are sons of God. No other way to get there except through his saving work, justification, being declared righteous and not guilty based on what Christ has accomplished and credited to us. And then our sanctification that leads us to adoption. We are adopted. We are sons of God. Not by nature, because by nature we're sons of Adam. But now, with the new nature, we are now sons of God. This no condemnation status, what else belongs to it? Not only the power of our sanctification. Not only the fact that we will not be condemned before God. But also that we are now heirs of Christ. But let me say it this way, heirs of God, as the scripture says it, and fellow heirs of Christ. We have the testimony of the spirit. But look at this. It's interesting if you look at Romans chapter eight, verse 15, for you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again. But you have received the spirit of adoption as, as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Look at that a little more closely. Paul does not contrast adoption with outright rejection. He doesn't contrast ad adoption with outright rejection as non-heirs without a family. Instead, he contrasts it with its effects. He deals with the effects. Specifically, he contrasts adoption as sons with the spirit of slavery. And then the effects of the spirit of slavery, fear. Because think about it. That's what the spirit of bondage brings. You know what you're seeing today? Yes, you're seeing incompetence. Yes, you're seeing so many things on so many levels. But you're also seeing fear. And you know what fear is a symptom of? Fear is not a symptom of anything global, anything political. It's a symptom of a spirit of bondage. You're seeing people in bondage. People who are enslaved to their flesh. And that produces fear. And they're upset with you when you don't have fear because you're free if you are in Christ. So when you are free, they will criticize you. They mock you. They make you think you're crazy because you won't be fear, fearful. Well, why? Because you've been freed from that spirit. It's the spirit of bondage. I'm not talking about the kind of fearlessness that doesn't calculate and count the cost of certain risk in front of you. I'm talking about the nature, eternal matters. We'll see it at the very end of this, what will separate us from the love of God. There's nothing out there that can separate us from the love of God. So then, really, what is there to fear? The one who conquered death itself, which all people to some degree who don't know Christ fear. Some more than others, but they all fear it. Well, if he's conquered that, then what are we afraid of? There's nothing to fear. But the spirit of bondage brings fear and fear. If you look at it, you can see it in the world before you. I believe that's why Romans one begins where it does and leads all the way up to where we are. Fear then brings pragmatism. Fear then brings self-preservation. It's a cycle. It's a cycle downward. Fear not only has with it self-preservation, but the effects of God's judgment. And I don't mean these are people who are fearing God. They know that God is the judge. They know it. It's written on their hearts. And so they have a fear of death. They have a fear of calamity, fear of sickness, fear of economic and political disaster. 
When really, I'm not looking for someone to make that all right in the world before me or else I'd be looking for the Antichrist. I want the one who's going to crush every single kingdom here and establish his own, which will be perfect, of which I'm a joint heir. You and I are joint heirs of that. You're a joint heir. That's the encouragement. No matter what may befall you, you are about to inherit an eternal kingdom in which you are an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ. It's yours. It's going to be delivered to you. You're talking about eternal riches on a scale that our minds and bodies cannot fathom in this life alone, which is why we have to be prepared for it, given glorified bodies for it. But if we are saved from the flesh into righteousness, then there's no reason to be slaves again to fear. There's no reason. You see it here. The spirit himself assures the testimony, he testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. That's the assurance. But that's why the enemy wants you always in community. He doesn't want you to have individual assurance. He wants you hiding in other people and their pragmatism and their fear and their self-preservation so that those things become your identity. But when you stand before Christ and you stand alone and you stand in the things that are said here, you individually begin to realize I'm at peace with him. I'm at peace with him. Why? Because the spirit is not testifying to your spirit about me. No, the spirit is testifying to your spirit about you and testifying to my spirit about me. And in that we look at one another and now we see, OK, we're walking in the spirit or we look at ourselves and go, OK, I'm walking in the spirit. Now I have peace. The spirit is testifying to me, actively telling me that I am now a child of God. I'm not interested in all the pragmatic means that people need to tell me that I am a child of God. I need to only come to the word and see what the standard is and then begin to deal with the standard and test myself according to the standard and measure myself. And then that testimony will come out to tell me if I truly belong to him. And then the spirit will affirm it because the spirit's work is to take me to what belongs to Christ and reveal it to me and then convict me of my sin where I fall short and then begin to deal with me in the matters of righteousness to build me up in Christ. That's the spirit's work. You have a lot of men today trying to do the spirit's work and it looks like it's a mess. A lot of men doing what they believe is the spirit. A lot of people think uh, today their institutions, their clever lines, their marketing expertise. They think all those things are a part of the Trinity. But really, I want the spirit. I want the spirit. I want the source. I want the source to tell me I belong to him. And I want the source to assure me that I belong to him. I'm not saying encouragement doesn't have its place. I'm also saying very plainly that fellowship has its place. But all those things are a byproduct of the spirit confirming things in us and bringing us together in agreement along those lines. So you have it. There's a sharp contrast that I pointed out. Uh, if you look at verse 15, when I originally read it, for you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you, but you speaking to Christians, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Only the Christian can cry out with those words, those words of affection, where you cry out to God, the father as your father, where you cry out to Jesus, the Christ as your Lord, God, eternal King and Savior. Where you thank God the Father and God the Son for the Spirit's work in you and pray for the Spirit's work in others. Only the Christian can use their mouths that way. But that is the evidence that you belong to him when it agrees with the life. That's the evidence. That's the assurance. And our hope is certainly in the assurance. Nothing wrong with having hope in the assurance. Why? Because the source of the assurance 
is perfect. We have the hope and the assurance. Look at verse 16. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit. Stands before the bar of God's justice and not only says that we're not guilty, says that we're children. God, these are your children. They have been bought by Christ. They have been cleansed by the blood of his cross and they will be presented before you perfect in that great day. The spirit bears that testimony and not only before God, but in us before God in us. That's the evidence. Think about it. This is so much more powerful than what people are doing today. It's so much more powerful. How can I be right with God? How can I be right with God? Hey, read this book. Read this commentary. Go to this group. Identify with these people. Tell these people I sent you. That's the means of sanctification today. It's powerless. It looks good. It draws a crowd. It's powerless. I want power. And I don't want power for myself. I want the power of God to be resonant in his people. That's the power I want. That's the power I want to see on display. I'm powerless without him. There is no power. In him, there's all power for all Christians. That's the kind of language today that overthrows rabbinical evangelical sentiment. Otherwise known as today's brand of Christianity. Our hope is in him. Our hope is in the assurance that he gives. Testifies that we're children. And being his children is not only in some general sense without distinction. What I love about Paul is how over-nuanced he is. Man after my own heart in that way. You over-nuance things. You explain them. But it's not simply this idea of being God's children. It's the life in the spirit affirmed by the spirit. And thus now we're granted joint heirship in Christ. We know. We know that we know. Later in John's epistles, at the end of the Bible, John speaks that way. You know. You know. Look at verse 17. And if children, heirs also. So it's not just that we're children. It would be enough if we were children. But it's that we're heirs also. You have many who would teach ecumenical sentiment, ecumenism, where they just join all things together. If you say you're a Christian, no matter what your beliefs are, they want to join you together. And they would say, well, you're all God's children. And they believe humanity at large is God's children. I don't want to simply be God's child. I want to be his heir. I want to be a joint heir with Christ. Only the Christian can say that. Because in some sense, some will try to make the case that even what Paul said in Acts, being children of God, and he's speaking from a creation standpoint, and now we have access to what God is and who he is and what he can do. Well, that's not true of the world at large. As a Christian, I am an heir. I'm an heir. If I want to be groomed, I want to be groomed by God. I want to be groomed by Christ. And if you're grooming me to possess something, I want it to be perfect. Well, guess what? For the Christian, that's the case. All the things that you're going through this hour yourself, as you think about the many things that may be assailing you, troubling you, you are being groomed to be a joint heir with Christ and an heir of God because you are his child. There's no greater blessing beyond that. There's no greater blessing beyond that. The testimony of the Spirit and, and the airship, it doesn't come without trouble. It doesn't come without trouble. That's what makes the prosperity gospel false. It doesn't come without trouble. That's what makes the gospel that some conservatives preach while they live prosperity gospel lives, that's what makes that message false. Real suffering is visited upon those who live in the way of righteousness and of Christ. But there's no other way to your heirship. There's no other way to inherit the kingdom. Through many trials, through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. 
There's no such thing as a world of absent trouble. And that trouble sometimes can be the most subtle things. It can be the large things. And it can spring up on you at a matter of a moment. But there's no other way into the kingdom. There's no other way to actually receive your airship. And I would argue that a part of that trouble that you're experiencing is the spirit's testimony. Agree that this is how you inherit what is yours. I think the brand of Christianity that exists today is eliminating this talk of trouble and suffering. And so when people go through trouble and suffering, we try to address it in ways that are unbiblical or we get rid of them like they're some kind of disease because they're suffering. Well, really, for the Christian, for the true Christian whose face is before God, whose life is before God, their lives are marked with trouble. I'm not just talking about persecution. I mean suffering, suffering. And I'm not saying we even use that as a badge of honor to compare. Well, my suffering is greater than yours. Yours is greater than mine. I must be made more righteous. No, we all have our suffering that we have to go through. Not only outer turmoil visited upon us, but the effects of outer turmoil that deals with us inwardly. The trouble that we face. Those things that may keep you awake that they don't keep me awake. Those things that keep me awake that may not keep you awake. Those things that drive me to my knees and drive you to your knees. Those people who drive me to my knees and may drive you to your knees. We're all visited with trouble, calamity, distress in every way. But the end of it is joint heirship. We are heirs to an eternal kingdom. We are heirs to an eternal kingdom. Paul identifies this as suffering. But listen, the hope is not in our suffering. It's a Hinduistic concept to believe that suffering itself is redemptive. Suffering is not redemptive for people who don't believe in Christ. Suffering is a glimpse of what they will endure eternally if they do not repent. So it's not just, well, you're suffering, it'll get better. No, if you're suffering in Christ, you will be vindicated. And it's not only the vindication of his coming in the second coming. It's the vindication of you receiving your joint heirship. To be in his eternal kingdom is the ultimate vindication. Because even his his conquering, his conquest points to the kingdom. That's the ultimate vindication. I want that vindication. The hope is not in our suffering alone. It's not in how much we suffer or even who in this life suffers with us. But instead, it is that we belong to God and we inherit what is his, no matter what may befall us. The suffering then has its purpose. His effect is that we suffer with him. We suffer with him. Look at verse 17. If children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. A lot of people miss this next part. If indeed we suffer with him. So that we may also be glorified with him. This is not some abstract community institutional suffering because of policies we don't like. This is those afflictions that are visited upon you because you are marked out as one who no longer belongs to the world system. And the world system, spiritually speaking, is antagonistic towards you in ways that are not always open for you to see. But the world system is opposed to you because you're in Christ, not because of your political affiliation, not because of where you live, not because of where you even attend school or attend work. If you're a Christian, the world system is opposed to you because you are in Christ. And that much is clear to the enemy of our souls. That much is clear. And you know how he knows? You know how he knows who he ought, to, he ought to mark as an enemy? He knows by your sanctified life. He knows by your testimony. He knows by your walk. He knows because he's observing those things. I don't speak of the enemy as though he's omniscient and he knows all things. We're all powerful. He holds all power. But he's watching him and his kingdom. 
watching those who actually live these things out, they are now marked for suffering as a consequence of the antagonism against them. But that's not our hope. The suffering has its purpose. Its effect, again, is that we suffer with him. But all this suffering propels us to what is said at the end of verse 17. If we indeed, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. We'll be glorified with him. This term is related very much to the end of our lives here on earth, but joined also uh, to the events of his second coming as he establishes his everlasting kingdom, according to the word of God. It's the idea that when the Christian finally is with Christ, the Christian is made perfect and presented before Christ as made perfect. And they also inherit the perfect kingdom of their perfect king. But I'll tell you, as we close, many do not preach airship any longer because they don't want to preach hardship any longer. And I'm talking about individual hardship. Many do not want to preach suffering for Christ from an eternal perspective because all the things that they've invested in are in this life alone. Hard to preach airship when you've tried to make the life here seem more appealing than that which is in eternity. And it is difficult for Christians to see the benefit in those circumstances of suffering well for Christ if they're only constantly stimulated by earthly things. Even religious things that are earthly and fleshly but may appear gloriously. But I'm here to tell you that suffering, true suffering for the Christian, leads to inhabiting the eternal kingdom. It's not suffering as a consequence of someone's foolishness. But I mean it's suffering for the kingdom. And then you are now realized as joint heirs with Christ. The next time we will look at verse 18 and uh, beyond and begin to establish what are we free from and what freedom awaits us. Let's pray.